Christians are weird, right? <laughs> Is that just me that feels that way? Does everybody feel that way? Group of people, most of you are Christians here probably. Um, that's okay. Some of you aren't, and you go, oh, finally, somebody said it. We're a little bit weird, aren't we? <laughs> Maybe put it this way. We're different. Okay, if you grew up in church, probably along the way, multiple people, to, well, if you came to faith later, you're part of a church, probably at some point, somebody talked to you about looking different. Things should look different, shouldn't they? If you live a life of faith, there should be things that are a little bit different from people who don't. Uh, that just makes sense, or else why would you have a life of faith? You would be looking for something. Um, but I remember, even as a kid growing up, um, there was always this thing, whether it was your parents or people at church, if you were in a Sunday school, your Sunday school teachers, it got tougher when you were a teenager. Uh, probably because that's a point. I think we all want to fit in, obviously, but your junior high, senior high, those are big years where uh, I think everybody feels a little bit different and you're trying to find a place to fit in. You don't want to feel different. You want to feel like, hey, I'm like everybody else and I have a group of people. And uh, for some people who, if you grew up or were part of a church community, there was sort of a heightened part of that maybe because it was, hey, I'm not just, you know, like everybody else different, but I also have this faith component. And so uh, maybe people talk to you about, we talk different. There are certain things we don't say or we do say that other people would maybe have a different way of doing things. We act different. There's a different kind of morality, maybe. Uh, there's certainly beliefs that are different from people around us, uh, but probably some, somewhere along the way, uh, somebody in church or around church, or you just got it subliminally, that there's, there's this difference, that we're supposed to be different. But sometimes it does come off as weird, doesn't it? I remember when that sort of became a little bit more clear to me. For me, it was when I was in university. So I grew up in the church, always been part of church, family, big part of church. My dad was a pastor, and so we were here for everything type of deal. Um, and then uh, for me, it was when I got into university. When I got into university, uh, God did something different for me, kind of gave me a passion. And one of the first things that really happened uh, along that journey was uh, I just really got into the scriptures. And I started in my first year. I was studying kinesiology. I loved it. It was really exciting. I wanted to do something in sports medicine. Um, but that year, God really got a hold of my heart, and I started reading scripture. Just like I just wanted to read more and more and more. And there was questions I had. I started figuring out. And so over that year, I decided I was going to switch, and I was going to study uh, the Bible, go into religious studies, um, and start getting credit for you know, all the stuff that I was studying and, and figure out these questions. So I started taking uh, Bible classes. I started taking uh, just anything I can. I took classes on uh, science and religion, because those were some of the big questions on my mind. Um, and I started just looking a little bit around at how Christians operated in the world on a different level. And the more that I studied and the more that I learned, the more questions that I had, uh, and maybe this was on some level deconstruction, which has become uh, kind of uh, a popular term, people who are looking at their faith and, and religious practices and going, does this fit anymore and all that kind of stuff. And for me, it wasn't a walking away from Jesus or walking away even from the church or from, from uh, my faith. Uh, for me, though, it was going, man, there are certain aspects of my faith, certain things that I see in the church and in how Christians are relating to the world that just seem really weird to me, that I don't know if I can go along with that anymore. And some of those were pretty theological, and there were certain uh, positions that I'd sort of been taught, if you're a Christian, then you're going to come to this realization, or you have to believe this, this, this. And I started taking some of these courses and reading things and going, I don't know if I, I do come to that. Some of it was just looking around at, at quote-unquote Christian culture, and uh, just kind of scratching my head and saying, I'm, I'm kind of wondering how uh, people who are following Jesus are coming to those conclusions. Some of it was around politics and people who were so confident, so sure, and so adamant that Christians will line up here politically. And I went, oh, that just doesn't 
fit with kind of what I'm reading in scripture or where I'm at. And to be a Christian, do I really have to kind of side on that political end? Some of it was with world events and how we interpret world events. And again, seeing how some Christians were making it very black and white. And if you're a Christian, you've got to stand here. And me going, I don't know if that fits anymore. And some of it was just really weird and didn't line up with what, what uh, you know, kind of I was studying or reading or I felt like God was doing in my life. And so I started asking some questions. And in those moments, I started changing my opinions on a bunch of things. And I'll tell you, that was a little scary because some of the things that I changed my opinions on, uh, at least for some people, were told to me that these are pillars of your faith, that if you take away some of these or change some of your beliefs, your, your whole faith crumbles. But what I found out is that that wasn't actually true, that there were actually uh, ways of looking at things and, and, and things in scripture that were uh, coming to my mind and my heart that actually were deepening my faith and, and changing uh, so much of my life. But what I felt in a way that reinforced my faith, even if it was changing it in a threatening way. And maybe you've had some of those experiences where you go, uh, I have a faith, or I'm interested in faith, or I'm asking some questions. But I also look out and go, man, there's a lot of weird in the Christian world. Some, some weird theological things, some weird practical things, some weird ways of living in the world. And what I want to do in this new series we're starting today um, is talk about what it looks like if we think through all of kind of our faith and practice and how we live out what we believe through the lens of centering Jesus, putting Jesus at the center. And for me, that was a huge uh, thing, is just to realize that when we put Jesus at the center of everything, that it really transforms how we look at the Bible, how we look at the world, how we treat each other, how we deal with conflict, how we look at politics. And these are some of the big questions that I want to talk about uh, in this series, which I think is going to, I hope, will be really helpful. And alongside of that, what I want to talk about a little bit is uh, a bit of our spiritual or religious history. Uh, We are a church, and, and as I've gone through some changes in sort of my theology over the years, we have as a church too. And in the last four or five years, Westside Church has aligned ourselves with a denomination called Being Christ. And one of the the spiritual threads or influences in our denomination and therefore our church has been uh, the Anabaptist movement. And if you have no idea what that means, that's fine because we're going to talk about it all through this series. And just look a little bit about how that influence, not the only influence uh, in our church and our denomination, but an important one, uh, was a group of people that really centered Jesus in everything that they did and everything that they thought. And I want to dive into that a little bit. We'll talk more about what that looks like. But first, maybe let's talk about uh, if we're different, if Christians are supposed to be different, and for those of us who are Christians, or if you're just checking this out, maybe you're watching online and you have questions about Christianity, and maybe asking, well, what, what would be so different about following Jesus, being a Christian, being part of this kind of community of faith? What is that? Why don't we start by talking about, well, what are we different from? So we are all being formed. We're being formed by certain ideas, relationships, our education, uh, philosophies. We don't always, uh, maybe even aren't always conscious of that. Um, But all of these ideas, whether they come through the media, other people, uh, formal education that we've had, we all have ideas, we all have frameworks that go into how we think about ourselves and our world and God and all those things. Um, And so I want to talk about that and just talk about maybe what in our culture, this is not every culture, but in kind of 2020. 23, the last few decades uh, here in the Western world, specifically in Canada, what is some of the, the dominant framework of how we think about life? And I would say, again, there's not just one, but perhaps the most dominating uh, framework, philosophy of thinking of life for us is secularism. 
And we've seen this, uh, Europe went before us. Europe, which at one time uh, was a very religious place to live, whatever that looked like and however you interpret that. So many people connected to church, Christianity, uh, some form of living out their faith, um, really went through a a massive transformation uh, where uh, most of Europe became dominantly secular, where people abandoned religious faith and spirituality in in ways. Canada has followed that kind of closely behind, whereas once upon a time, it might have been very common for people to be in a Christian church. Uh, we get to a place where it's a small minority of us who are regularly worshiping uh, and would consider ourselves Christians or, or part of uh, a Christian church. We're seeing now, interestingly, the United States coming behind us. So still a lot of cultural Christianity, which, by the way, is not all good. There's a lot of problems with that. Um, but secularism, especially in certain parts of the United States, have really taken root. And we're seeing them south of the border deal with that more and more. What is secularism? Mark Sayers uh, just simply puts it this way. Secularism is a framework that works against belief. So that could be religious faith could be belief in the supernatural or God, uh, the big narratives in the world, the idea that uh, our lives are not our own, but we might fit into a bigger story. These are things that in modernity and now postmodernity and beyond, uh, a lot of people have started to give up those ideas that, hey, I might be part of a bigger story, um, that there could be supernatural uh, beings or a God out there, uh, and that religious faith is something that actually helps us. There's a whole huge number of reasons and different uh, time periods and philosophies that have got us to where we are in terms of secularism. Um, Things like the Enlightenment and all the different changes of of ways of thinking that came from the Enlightenment. Uh, The Reformation, which we'll talk about today. The rise of uh, scientific method uh, and technology has gone a long way. Industrialization changed the way we think. Globalization and the fact that now we communicate with people all over the world all the time and we get so many different ways of thinking has contributed to this. Um, But in general, and I'm not saying everybody thinks this way or everybody... Uh, would, would use that language. But in general, kind of one of those, those big driving forces of our culture has become secularization, uh, which is to say, maybe we don't need God to explain a lot of the things that we used to explain because we've got science, we've got technology, we've got different philosophies, uh, that maybe uh, we are self-sufficient, uh, that we don't need God, that we can actually move history forward in a positive way, uh, and, and that uh, God is, you know, for a lot of people, um, maybe something that we invented or a crutch that we lean on, uh, that maybe we, we don't really even need. And whether you agree with that or not, um, a couple of the, the isms that have kind of gone along with secularism that we see are, are also very strong um, influences in our lives uh, is that of consumerism and individualism. So when we start to doubt that there's a God and that we're part of a bigger story, what has replaced that for so many of us is, I am the point of my life. Or maybe me and my family, this individualism uh, that says the, the goal of my life is for me to be happy or fulfilled or whatever it is. And by the way, I want to be happy. Everybody wants to be happy. But just so you know, that has not been the goal for most people in most societies. So if you think, oh, the goal of being happy, well, that's always been the goal for every human being. That's very popular for us to think, but it is actually not popular in the history of the world and around the world. Again, not that people didn't want to be happy, but for that to be the goal or the fulfillment of our lives. So last night, my wife and I were watching TV and we were watching the show. And uh, in the show, uh, it's one of these family dynamics and they're always fighting and complicated and whatever. And in the show, uh, 
a couple of people, they get together romantically, they start a relationship, and it shocks the rest of their family. They're all adults, and they go, oh, we didn't see this coming, and they're uncomfortable with it, uh, and we don't like that this happened, and we're not sure about him, or we're not sure about her, and they're all kind of rattled, and they have this little family meeting and talk about it, and at the end, one of the characters says to the people who have just gotten this relationship, and they go, oh, but you know what? You seem, you seem really happy, and that's all that we want for you. And we all kind of accept that as, well, that's the goal. But that's not the goal for so many people in life. It, it might be a great byproduct. It might be something important, might be a value. But for so many of us, that individualism and the self-fulfillment and the, the happiness, which we all want, is now kind of number one. It's this, this individualistic thing for me and my family. Consumerism comes closely behind it to say, well, how do we achieve that kind of happiness? And our culture really drives, well, drive a certain car or go on certain vacations or live in a certain house or a neighborhood or make so much money. Um, and these things really go together. How do I become happy? Well, I climb the ladder, I make more money, I buy more things, I save more for retirement, I get comfortable, I, I care for my family. And again, it's not that any of these things in themselves are wrong and I'm saying, we shouldn't pursue them, but just to realize that this is not like a people for all time in all places have thought this way. This comes out of sort of the underlying secularism that says our lives are about me and maybe my family, but very individualistic and consumerism and uh, in large part in our culture, a secularism that says that's because we're not part of a bigger story. Uh, it's not necessarily that there is a God or supernatural things as much as we just have to deal with the things around us physically or materially. Um, to help us be happier. Now, this is not new. Uh, cultures, this has happened. It cycles through all the time. Uh, people have studied it. Sociologists have studied it. And secular cultures and societies end up having two big gaps. So you can argue about, are these things all good or are all these things bad? But what happens is there are a couple of uh, insufficiencies that are almost always noted. The first one is we struggle with meaning and purpose. So uh, as much as we go, hey, my purpose is to be happy, and we kind of, we chase that, uh, we try and drink fancy coffee and, you know, all the stuff I just mentioned, make my life really good, uh, we still, at the end of the day, scratch our head and go, but what am I here for? Like, is it, there's got to be something more than this. Uh, for a while, we dabble in the things that we think will make us happy, and then ultimately realize they're not doing what we thought they would do, and we go, what are we here for if there's nothing bigger? Uh, and we start to, to just wonder, what in, the, what in the world are we doing? The second one is justice. At some point, uh, most of us have this drive to say the world should be better than it is. That there's still a lot of things in our world. We watch the news and we go, there are these wars. There are people who are dying of hunger. There are people who don't have clean water to drink. There are people who are going without. Their basic needs aren't being met. Uh, and for a lot of us, there comes points in life where we go, man, we're living this life, often individual, consumer-driven, uh, very secular. And yet we go, it's not working because I still have this need for a bigger purpose. And we're still struggling with the fact that we thought and we did think human people years ago, that by now we would be a lot further along than we were in creating a society that's actually good for us. Uh, and instead, we actually go, I don't know, like we make some strides, but also things are still really bad for some people and um, we're not where we want to be. And so what happens, they studied that is, and this is really interesting, I think, for where we're at, when, when society goes far enough in a secularism and starts to realize these gaps are pretty big and we need to do something uh, about it, uh, the way people go, a couple of ways, but one of them is very political and to religions that are very political. Now that's interesting because have you seen how divided politically people are getting? 
You go, oh, maybe because it's a result of some of these things. We are desperate for purpose, and we're desperate for the world to be a better place. And now we go, well, where do we find that? How do we get there? Maybe it's a political party. Maybe it's a fringe group. Maybe it's a lobby group. Maybe it's a religion that's very political because we need things to be different. We need things to be better, and we're not sure how to get there. Now, I think in the midst of it, because I think that very much categorizes where a lot of people are at in our culture, but I think also for some of us, we would go, maybe there's another way to go, and maybe the way to go is that perhaps it is the faith that we need to reclaim, that some of the supernatural we need to reclaim, that perhaps we actually need a God that has a bigger purpose for us, a God that's working in our world that gives us hope that things can be better and that history can progress to something that it's not right now. And so we've gone through a lot of philosophical changes in the, in the last number of decades. Uh, we've gone through global crises. Uh, we've continued to see a lot of uh, political shifting and polarization. And I wonder if now is just a really great opportunity for us to rethink what it means to live in faith in our world, in our culture, and how centering Jesus, placing Jesus at the center, could change everything for us. So let me talk about the Anabaptists. The Anabaptists were a group of people that came out of the Reformation. So church history, because I know you're all begging, man, I hope today's going to talk about history of the church. Well, today's your lucky day. Uh, I'll cut it down super simply. We could go on and on for this. But in the 1500s, 500 years ago, almost exactly, uh, the Protestant Reformation took place. In Europe, other parts of the world, but really uh, it happened a lot in Europe. Europe was very Christian. The Roman Catholic Church was the church. There were a bunch of people who said, there's some problems with our church. It's very political. It's very entwined with politics, and they saw a lot of problems with that. They said that we have a problem with um, how much authority the Pope has and the church has, the institution of the church has, to tell us exactly what we should think and how we should believe and how we should act. There were reformers uh, like Martin Luther, my, probably the most popular name you might have heard of, who said, actually, we start reading the scripture and we find out the Catholic church seems to be telling us all the things that we need to do to be saved, but actually, when we read scripture, we find out um, that it's not about what we needed to do to be, faith, to be saved. It's about our faith saves us because God saves us and we put our faith uh, in Jesus and that's how we're saved. And some, so some of these big things uh, came out of it. There's a lot that I can't go into. But authority, not just in the Pope or the priest that tell us everything we should believe, but they said actually authority in the Bible. We believe the Bible is inspired and God has, has given us uh, his, his scriptures for us to learn from. And what they said is actually it shouldn't just be the priests or the Pope that can interpret this, but we should be able to interpret it as well. They saw a lot of abuses in the church because of that, because there was so much power in the institution um, that they were, they were abusing that authority uh, in order, in some cases, to make money or to stay in power or to keep things flowing uh, politically as they joined with a lot of the, the politics of the day. And so the reformers came out and said, no, uh, we are saved by faith alone uh, and we need to read the Bible. This is where we get uh, the word of God comes to us through the Bible. And that's, that's really important. Now, there was another group of people in places like Switzerland and Germany and another, a number of other European countries who said, wow, these guys are right. Um, you know, th there's a lot of problems with that much authority in the church. And the printing press had just, you know, decades earlier had made reading more accessible to more people. So before that, most people didn't read. Now, a few more people and a few more people uh, that weren't the educated, the super elite educated people were reading and they could start reading their Bible. And they said, this is great. And there's an authority in the scripture. God has spoken us to the scripture. And so these people who became the Anabaptists, and a lot of people um, call this the radical reformation, said, man, these reformers like Martin Luther, they're right, that we're saved by faith. 
and that, that there's authority in Scripture. But then they said, as we read Scripture, what we're finding out is that what faith should look like is different than what we're seeing in the world. That our faith lived out should look like Jesus, that we should become more like Jesus, that, that we should take very seriously what Jesus teaches us that faith looks like. And so they didn't say, no, we're saved by, by what we do, which was one of the problems that the reformers had with the Catholic Church. But instead, they're saying, but if we are saved by faith, there should be fruit in our lives. And that should look like the way that Jesus lived his life, that, that he showed us what it looks like to live a life of faith, to live a life that isn't just politically motivated, but that is lived in the power of God, that Jesus teaches us what it looks like to live in the presence of God all the time, that Jesus announced there was a new way of living in the world. This was Jesus' great announcement that the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God is now here, is now available to you. You can live this way. And then they took this very seriously. Jesus would look at people and say, come and follow me. And the radical reformers who became the Anabaptists, and it's, it's a pretty wide movement. It's not just uh, one stream that thought all the exact same things. There's, there's a spectrum of beliefs even among the Anabaptists. But what was big for them was to say, we need to take seriously the call of Jesus when he says, come follow me. And so texts like the Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew chapter 5 to 7, one of the biggest sections of teaching uh, of Jesus that we have, they would say, that is what we kind of have to make core, is saying, here's how Jesus tells us that a life of faith is lived out. We've got to take that seriously. We've got to live the way that Jesus has called us to live. And so what happened is the Catholics saw the Anabaptists as a big threat, just like they did the Protestants, uh, the protesters, uh, that these people, they're, they're going against the authority uh, of the church and of politics, and they're trying to upset things and all the rest of it. The protesters actually didn't like them either because they said, well, now you're going too far and you're getting crazy, and we can't actually live the way that Jesus set us to live. That's kind of crazy. And so uh, the Anabaptists became persecuted by everybody. Uh, like literally, some of them martyred, some of them killed for being too radical, for, for uh, actually uh, stepping out and changing things, transforming their lives in the power of God by following Jesus. And yet, at the core of their faith became the call to follow Jesus and to place Jesus at the center. The center of their politics, the center of how they read Bible, the center of their community, um, the center of how they deal with conflict. And so again, over the next few weeks, I want to talk about some of those areas because I think they uh, lived and, and were kind of born out in a time in history that has some parallels to where we're at and could be very, very transformational for us to say, what does it look like for us to center Jesus? The Anabaptist, Anabaptist, by the way, means uh, to be baptized again. And so what was big for them was to say, the Catholic Church, they baptize you when you're a baby because your parents bring you to church, and they baptize you, and they say, now you're part of the church. And the Anabaptist said, uh, well, uh, we actually believe it's really important that as people grow up and decide that they want to be part of the church, they will want to follow Jesus to make that commitment, that's when we want to baptize them. And again, it got them into big trouble um, with pretty much everybody around, but for them to say that choice and, and entering into what God is doing is really, truly important as we actually follow Jesus, as we live lives of faith. So in Matthew chapter 16, Jesus said this to his disciples. From then on, Jesus began to tell his disciples plainly that it was necessary for him to go to Jerusalem and that he would suffer many terrible things at the hands of the elders, the leading priests, and the teachers of religious law. He would be killed, but on the third day, he would be raised from the dead. 
something that was so hard for them. You get it, right? He's trying to tell them, I'm going to be crucified, I'm going to die, but God is going to vindicate me. We'll come back to that in a second. Peter took him aside and began to reprimand him for saying such things. Heaven forbid, Lord, he said, this will never happen to you. Jesus turned to Peter and said, get away from me, Satan. That means the accuser, strong language. He says, you are a dangerous trap to me. You are seeing things merely from a human point of view, not from God's. Then Jesus said to his disciples, now he turns to them and says, if any of you wants to be my follower, you must give up on your own way. Take up your cross and follow me. If you try to hang on to your life, you will lose it. But if you give up your life for my sake, you will save it. And what do you benefit if you gain the whole world but lose your own soul? Is anything worth more than your soul? This is so crucial. In the New Testament, the cross is given significance on multiple layers. There's theological layers. Uh, you know, what did this mean from a, a, a mystical perspective uh, or, or a spiritual perspective? And we can get all, those are really important, but I, just, I don't want you to miss. Why does Jesus talk about the cross? Why does Jesus actually die on a cross? He could have just said, I'm going to die and God's going to res- resurrect me. But there's this specific on a cross Now, why do people get crucified on a Roman cross in Jesus' day? Uh, Most common criminals would not be executed on a cross. We read in some of the Gospels, there was a couple of other men who were crucified beside Jesus. And uh, they they talk about how um, they're thieves, which the translation is not great, should actually be revolutionaries. The Romans did not just execute just anybody on a cross. They publicly executed on a cross people that were trying to upheave their government, their religious system, everything that they believed in. They were trying to make uh, an example of people that were stirring up. So think of today's uh, Martin Luther King Jr.'s birthday, great civil rights leader in the United States who was uh, assassinated. Tomorrow in the States is Martin Luther King Jr. Day. This is what you need to picture. Somebody uh, who's a revolutionary, who people all over are following and are saying it's time for things to change, who are threatening the religious order, the political order, people that they think could actually overthrow the government. So picture, you know, massive protests at political buildings, people who stand in front of tanks, people who have huge rallies, people who you're worried that this many people getting together and feeling like we could have major political and social change, that's dangerous. Like, are they going to, they're thinking, are they going to actually create an army? Are they going to fight against us? Are they going to get violent? Are they going to overthrow? Is this a coup? Like, these are the kind of things we're thinking. So the Romans would say, when those people arise, we put their leaders on a cross. And we say, this movement is dead. That's your leader. And that's what happens to people that try and overthrow our system. We crucify them. So if you were following that person, you need to know that movement is over because they're dead. They've lost. We're in charge. Stop protesting. Stop trying to transform things. Stop trying to, that was the point of a cross. And by the way, if you have any ideas of becoming a revolutionary, don't. Because you know what happens to revolutionaries in Rome? We put them on a cross. We torture them and kill them. We execute them in front of everybody. It's a deterrent. Why did Jesus die on a cross? For a lot of reasons, but we can't miss. Because he was a revolutionary. When Jesus said to his disciples, come and follow me, and you need to take up your cross... He was saying, come and join the revolution. Come and join a movement that is challenging the way that things are to a point where people are going to look at you and say, you're so different and we're scared. 
Now, we're going to talk about what Jesus' revolution looked like all the way through this series because it's very different from the violent revolutions of our world, uh, the armies, the, the militias that are, are raised up. Uh, Jesus was bringing a, a peaceful revolution, a, a different way of doing things. But when he announced that the, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is now available, it was revolutionary. When people called Jesus the son of God, that was a title you need to understand for Caesar. And so when you take that title from Caesar and place it to Jesus and give him authority, you put him at the center. What happens to Caesar? He says, we need to put that man on a cross. What happens when the religious system sees that people are following Jesus more than their system and in droves are coming away from the temple or criticizing the temple or or, or criticizing their leadership and coming to follow him? They say, we need to do something about him. This guy is so transformational. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Because he was a revolutionary. So when Jesus says, come and follow me, take up your cross, sometimes we say, uh, when we're having a tough week or we're, we're in pain, we're suffering, we say, this is my cross to bear. Suffering is certainly part of it. But Jesus is saying, come and join the revolution. Come and, change, uh, come and be part of a different way of living in the world. Come and put me at the center and I'll see what your life could look like. Uh, John Howard Yoder, who is uh, probably the most prominent Anabaptist theologian, um, he puts it this way when he talks about the call uh, Jesus gives us, the invitation to follow him. It's a bit of a lengthy quote, but I think it's a good one, so uh, listen in. He says, Jesus is not against the real world. He does not oppose happiness and structure or even power, family, and productivity. He's talking about what shape those things should have in the real world. He brings a new pattern for the real life of the real world, a new pattern that the world cannot tolerate because it is in the world, not because it is otherworldly or anti-worldly. He says, love your enemies in this world because God does, in a world where people do not want to love their enemies. He says, forgive the offender in this world because God does, in a world that does not want to forgive the offenders. He says, share your bread because God gave it to us all in a world that does not want to share bread. He says, upset the hierarchy. The slave is a brother of his master. The woman is of equal dignity to the man in a world that wanted to save that hierarchy. He says, share your decision-making because God and the Spirit is with all of us in a world where decisions were supposed to be made by the people on top. He says, gather voluntarily because God's nature is such that God won't force you in in a world where both religion and politics were coercive. He says, fulfill the law because God enables you to fulfill the law. I am the fulfillment of the law in a world where... What most people tried to do with the law was to redefine it so they could scrape through without much trouble. The newness of Jesus is a new culture. It's a new society that has to be crucified because that is what the world does not want. And so the Anabaptist said what Jesus has brought and offered to us is not, uh, as he says later, the church is an alternative to culture. It's not otherworldly or anti-worldly. It is new worldly. It is to live in such a way that comes alongside of what Jesus teaches us is what God is doing in the world. To connect with God and his spirit and allow him to move us where he wants to go. To be invited back to a spirit-filled world, a God-filled world where his presence is here and available and we can live in him and in faith we can follow Jesus. My question to you is simply this. What area of your life does this challenge you to rethink how you live? In what area, if you think of not just a little reformation, but a revolution, what is the area that this challenges where you say, oh, am I really different? And not just different, because the point is not just to be weird. Some of us are. It's fine if you're weird. Not just different, but different. Not just, not just non-conformed to the world, but conformed to Jesus. 
Where do I push that aside and where do I embrace it? It's very, very easy for us to say, my goal in life is to be happy. Uh, For many of us, let's be honest, to be middle class or higher, to have a good family that we love, to raise up kids that have a little bit of morality, to retire well and comfortably. None of that's wrong. None of that's wrong in and of itself. But you don't need Jesus for that. It's really not any different. It's not revolutionary. But what if we took on the challenge to follow Jesus, to love our family? Oh, but what about loving our enemy? To care for the people around us that we agree with or to forgive those who have hurt us? To provide for our children or to provide for those in need outside of our house, outside of our tribe? What if we took on this revolutionary love and said perhaps that that is exactly what Jesus was calling us to when he announced the kingdom of God is here. So Heavenly Father, what a challenge that is for us, and yet we just want to acknowledge that that is not something we do in our own power. Thank you that Jesus taught us that that your presence is all around us and available to us, that your forgiveness is, is ready for us, that your love knows no bounds that we can know what it looks like to to live in your presence and that you will empower us to live the life that Jesus has called us to live. So today, as we are challenging ourselves and just challenged in in those moments to say, uh, my life doesn't look that revolutionary, would you bring those things to the forefront, the ways that you might be challenging us to allow us to embrace them and then allow you to continue to change us that we might live out that call, that we might have the courage and the energy to take up our cross and join the revolution. In Jesus' name.